Well, friends, it's summertime, and that means that a lot of us are looking forward to vacations, probably going to the beach or something like that. Um, If you are going to the beach, let me give you some words of wisdom that come from experience. Don't go to the beach in the middle of a hurricane. (laughs) It seems like it should be common sense, right? Well, two years ago, uh, my family and I were going to the Outer Banks. Well, this particular time that we were going, there was a tropical storm that happened to be moving its way up the coast, and it was hitting the Outer Banks on the very day that we were supposed to arrive. And so, of course, we're watching the weather very intently, and we're thinking, we're trying to see if we could get out there, maybe it's going to pass, and surely the weather is saying that it's going to be gone all the way up north by the time that we actually arrive. So we wake up, and we put all five kids in the van, and we're like, we're just going to go because we just want to get out there, right? Well, if you've ever been out to the Outer Banks, you know that to get out to the islands, you have to cross some pretty serious bridges. You know, there's like mile, three mile long bridges or something that go across the sound that get you out to the island. Well, in high winds, for safety reasons, those bridges are closed. So as we're getting close, we're watching, you know, the, the, the Department of Transportation, seeing if the bridges are going to open or not. And sure enough, by the time that we get out there, the bridges, they open up. And we're like, great, let's go ahead and cross. So I don't know, so we get out, yeah. <laughs> you know where this is going, right? So we get out, I don't know, about a mile out into the middle of the sound, and all of a sudden, traffic comes to a dead stop. Dead stop. And the winds pick up. And the rains start coming down in sheets. Friends, it got insane. Here we are in this small 20-year-old van with five kids in the back, just rocking back and forth in these high winds. I'm looking over the edge and watching these big waves come up and hit the side of the bridge. The kids are in the back saying, Mommy, Daddy, we're scared. And of course, Laura and I are like, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, right? But, but really, we're, we're, we're actually inside, we're panicking, we're kind of freaking out. In fact, Laura's Googling, how fast does the wind have to go in order to knock a van over? Yeah. That's right, exactly, exactly. On top of that, in front of me, there's actually a truck that's towing this, this big boat, right? It's like there's this big boat on a trailer. And so in my mind, in my irrational fear, I'm already making a plan on how I'm going to get all five of my kids out of this van and into that boat because I was certain, yeah, I was certain that, that, this, that this massive wind was going to come and knock us off the bridge or some wave was just going to come up and just wash us out to, sh- wash us out to sea. Now, we survived. I know you were all worried about that. We survived. And rationally, if I was thinking about it, obviously, I I knew that we were probably going to be safe because the bridges are made for those kind of things. But friends, I was terrified. In fact, ask Laura. I mean, she can vouch for this. It took me days to calm down from that whole ordeal. It was scary. Well, as frightened as I was on that bridge in the middle of that storm, I can only imagine what the disciples must have been going through and must have felt when they were caught in a powerful storm out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and when they were on a vessel that was nowhere near as stable as that concrete bridge that we were on and in a boat that I'm sure was nowhere near as sophisticated as that small yacht that was in front of me. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to to Mark chapter 4. We're going to look at this scene where the disciples are caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now, Mark chapter 4, this episode takes place pretty early in Jesus' public ministry, and it is rich 
with treasures that help us to more fully understand who Jesus is and what his identity means for our discipleship. In particular, look, as we grow in our understanding of Christ's identity, our faith and our trust in him grows, and it gives us courage to follow him wherever he leads, wherever he leads. And so the question that I believe that Mark chapter 4, this scene where they're out in the middle of the lake, caught in a storm, there's a question that I think it it calls to us, and and it asks us to, to answer for ourselves, and the question goes like this. Do we have faith to follow Jesus without fear? Do we have faith to follow without fear? So to kind of unpack that question a little bit, let's look at this episode. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. It starts like this. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Now let's stop there. The context here is that Mark chapter 4 opens up in, in verse 1 with crowds coming around Jesus. And what Jesus does is he gets actually into a boat while everybody else is out on the shore, and he spends the entire day teaching everybody um, parables about the character of the kingdom. He spends the entire day. And so after teaching all day, I'm sure Jesus is tired, and he says to his disciples, let's go across to the other side. One thing that Mark doesn't tell us is that he doesn't tell us why Jesus wanted to go across to the other side of of the sea. We do know that the other side of the sea is actually Gentile territory and that Jews usually didn't go there. But nonetheless, Jesus wanted to go there for some reason and he just says to his disciples, let us go. And I read that and I said, yeah, that sounds about right. Because you see, quite often, Jesus says to his disciples and to us, let us go. Or more simply, follow me. And with these words, you see, Jesus is calling us to begin a journey of discipleship with him. And in general, we know where that journey ends. But here's the thing. Rarely, if ever, are we given all the specific places that Jesus is going to lead us through. And almost never are we told why Jesus leads us through these places. Most of the time, we're not given the reasoning. Jesus hardly ever lays out a roadmap for us in advance. He just simply calls to us and says, let us go. Don't miss how profound those words really are. You see, the passage forces us to examine ourselves and see that whether or not if when Jesus calls and he says, let us go, whether or not we have enough faith and trust in him to follow. Verse 36. It says, leaving the crowd... They took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and there were other boats with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, most of the disciples here, they're experienced fishermen, right? So most of them had probably been fishing this particular sea probably most of their lives. They knew this terrain pretty well. They would have also known that it was quite common because of the terrain, for storms to pop up all of a sudden. Now, in in the description, Mark doesn't actually tell us their emotions. Matthew and Luke, they go into a little bit more detail about what they're feeling and how they were acting, but what's implied is that 
This storm came out of nowhere, and this storm was unlike anything that they had ever seen in all of their years of fishing this particular lake, and because of that, they were terrified. Because of that, they were terrified. They were experienced fishermen, they were experienced boaters, they would have known what waves like this would have done to their boat. Now, I want to caution something at this point. Don't be too hard on the disciples. Don't be too hard on the disciples. It's easy for us to read this passage and say, well, they shouldn't have been worried because Jesus was in the boat with them. In one sense, that's true, but that's only because we know the end of the story. right? We know the end of the story. They didn't. I want us to put ourselves this morning in that boat with them. Remember that this is still pretty early in Jesus' ministry. It's way before the resurrection. The disciples had seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things and, and, and do a lot of miracles. They were beginning to understand that Jesus really was the Messiah, but they were still in their minds working with old categories and filtering it through categories that didn't allow them to fully see what that actually meant. They were afraid of this storm. And friends, I want to suggest that we would have been too. We really would have been too. I truly believe that, that they are just simply reacting in the way that actually we all kind of react in these kind of situations. Think about that. How do you react when a storm, metaphorically or even physically, kind of hits you out of the blue? How do you react? Wouldn't it be great if we could see every single storm approaching and have time to prepare? Wouldn't that just be awesome? You know, I love it when I'm at the beach and I can look out on the horizon and I see a storm coming in and, and, I, can, and I can see it and I can say, you know what, we got about 45 minutes, we're going to keep swimming and then, then we're going to go inside, right? The problem is, is that rarely, if ever, are the storms in life like that. Verse 38. It says, but Jesus was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, he was in the stern, and he was asleep on a cushion. His disciples woke him up and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, like I said, I think they react the same way that we all tend to react. How many times has something happened to you in life, and we look to God because we know that's what we're supposed to do, but it just seems like God's asleep? The disciples see Jesus curled up on a cushion, right? He's out cold. He's comfortable, but they're terrified. They're terrified. And they're saying, Jesus, do you even care that we're perishing? Do you, I want you to feel the weight of that, friends. I mean, have you ever been there? Have, have you ever felt like God just doesn't care? That's a real place of despair. I mean, think about it. The very one on whom that we're supposed to cast all of our cares seems to be acting like he doesn't care? I can tell you there's nothing worse in life than that. Add to this the very fact that it was Jesus who led them onto the lake in the first place. The very one who's supposed to be guiding this whole journey is off in his own little world, seemingly leaving his disciples to fend for themselves. Now, when we perceive things like that, when that's how we perceive what God is up to, it's easy for us to panic and to fall into despair. A similar thing happens 
with Israel during the Exodus. Remember, they are led out of captivity. They're led out into the wilderness. And then all of a sudden, they look up and they see Pharaoh's army coming to them. In, in Exodus 14, 11, they look at Moses and they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have brought us out to the wilderness to die? You see, Israel, like the disciples, they had no idea how they were going to survive. They couldn't see all that the Lord was up to. And not having God's perspective, what did they begin to do? They began accusing the very one who brought them into this situation in the first place. Now, again, I know that's something that we've all done at some point. I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying it's normal. Think of Job. Think of the book of Job, the Old Testament passage that we read just a little bit ago. Let me give you a bit of Bible trivia before we get into this. Do you know that Job is actually the oldest book of the Bible that was written? Scholars think that it was the first book ever written of the Bible. The oldest book of the Bible is dedicated to this very subject. Where is God in the midst of human suffering? That is one of the most ancient questions. I think that's pretty amazing. So in the book of Job, you have Job, you have this guy whom God has declared to be righteous, and yet God allows Satan, or the adversary, to bring great suffering upon Job and on his household. And once that happens, Job is dumbfounded. He's dumbfounded as to why this is happening to him because he's a good guy. He's a righteous guy. And then the book proceeds with chapter after chapter after chapter of Job's friends trying to make sense of this and giving all of these explanations that God will later say are inadequate and actually very ignorant. But Job is suffering greatly, and he suffers greatly for a long time. And it's only near the end of his suffering, only near the end of the book, when he's basically being crushed under the weight of his sin, when he's had all he could take, he begins accusing God. He begins accusing God. He begins accusing God that maybe God is absent, right? In Job 23, verse 2, he says, Today my complaint is bitter. Oh, that I knew where to find you, God. He even goes on accusing God, saying that God is unjust. Well, after he goes on for a while, for about 38 chapters, God is silent until Job begins accusing him. And then in chapter 38... God does show up, and he answers Job, and he answers Job from out of a whirlwind, it says. Don't miss that. Remember in Mark, the disciples are on the sea, and they're dealing with a great storm that some scholars believe is a whirlwind-type storm, and yet here is God in Job speaking to Job from out of this whirlwind. And when God speaks... He answers Job's accusations, and he answers Job's complaints. But here's how God responds to whether or not he's unjust or whether or not he doesn't care. It's the first thing he says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Friends, if there, is, if there, are, there, there are no greater words in all the scripture that I believe brings us to silence before a holy God, then 
Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? God will then continue to go on and he'll say, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I stretched out the heavens? Where were you when I shut the doors of the sea? And God will continue to go on in great detail about all the intricacies of creation and all the intricacies of the universe. And he shows Job that there are things that only he can know that only God can know because God is the creator of all and God is the origin of all life. Friends, I admit that reading the book of Job can be a very frustrating experience. It can be a very frustrating experience. That's because we're never actually given an answer to this most ancient problem. We're never given an explanation. God does answer Job Definitely, he answers Job, but he doesn't answer it in the way that we would normally think he should be answered or the way that we would normally want to be answered. You see, that's because God doesn't give Job an explanation for why he's allowed Job to suffer. He doesn't give him an explanation. What he gives him is a perspective. He answers Job by giving him a perspective. You see, Job is being crushed under the weight of his sin, and all he can do is see things that are going on right in front of him. And it causes him to lose sight of who God is, and it causes him to even think things that are wrong about who God is. And so God answers Job by showing him that God sees things in a way that Job can never see things. Notice what's going on there. Don't miss this. In answering Job, he's not necessarily explaining him, explaining what's going on, God is revealing himself to Job. God shows up and reveals himself to Job. And that, my friends, I want to suggest to you this morning, is what Job needed most. You see, by the end of the book, Job's very last words go like this. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. And then he repents and the dialogue comes to an end. Again, Job never receives an explanation. What he receives is a vision of who God is. He receives a vision of who God is. Now, friends, I admit that as one who who has training in philosophy, that it actually kind of pains me to admit that in the midst of the storms of life, an explanation is not what is needed most. What is needed most when we're grieving, when we are suffering, when we are struggling, it's not an explanation, it's a revelation. It's not an explanation, it's a revelation. What we need most is to see God. That's what we need to see. Because seeing God gives us a bigger perspective. And that perspective is what causes us to trust him more even in the midst of the storms of life. So bringing it back to our passage in Mark chapter four, I want to suggest to you that this is exactly what's going on in Mark chapter 4. You see, the disciples look and they see Jesus and he's sleeping. And from their perspective, he doesn't care. Right? The passage is written in such a way so that what we actually see are two different perspectives. The disciples' perspectives, the disciples' perspective, and Jesus' perspective. And it calls to us to adopt Jesus' perspective. When we're told that Jesus is asleep on a cushion, that is not a passing detail. That is meant to invoke something in us. You see, to a Jewish mindset, a deep sleep 
is symbolic of perfect peace and ultimate trust in the Lord. Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you, O Lord, alone make me dwell in safety. In Proverbs 3, verse 24, we're told that if we walk in the ways of the Lord, that we will lie down and we will not be afraid and that we will sleep a sweet sleep. And so by showing us that Jesus is sound asleep, that's meant to convey to us that Jesus is at perfect peace. And the reason that he's at perfect peace is because he has perfect trust in the Father. He has perfect trust in the Father. See, Jesus is at peace while everyone around him is panicking. Right? You ever been in a large crowd and something goes wrong and all of a sudden you hear this voice come over a loudspeaker that says, everybody keep calm. Everybody keep calm and move calmly to the exits. You ever experienced that? Well, the reason why they were told to keep calm is because panic likes to spread. Right? When one person panics, other people around them begin to panic too. When we're panicking, we want other people to panic with us, don't we? Sometimes we even want God to panic as well. Have you, ever, have you ever been there? You know, there are those times in life when we want the very things that are causing us distress to distress God as well. And then when we don't see him reacting the way that we think that he should, all of a sudden we get angry because we feel that he's not acting the way that we think that he should act and he's not feeling the things that we think that he should feel. But have you ever thought that maybe, just maybe, God's silence in the moment is actually a good thing? You ever thought that maybe God's silence is actually a good thing? I know that that sounds very counterintuitive to say. I know it, says, it sounds counterintuitive. But maybe, just maybe, in the middle of our distress, when we're not panicking, God's silence is our greatest comfort. Because what it tells us very loudly is that God is not panicking. God is not panicking. When God is silent, it means that he simply isn't reacting the way that we are. Why should that bring us peace and comfort? Well, have you ever been in a situation where you're anxious and you look around and other people are not anxious and that actually helps you to calm down yourself? How much more would that be with an infinite God? How much more should that be with an infinite God? Friends, I believe that one of the takeaways of this passage is that instead of in our storms of life, instead of rushing to make Jesus feel the panic that we feel in life, that we should look upon Jesus and let him communicate his perfect peace to us. There are times when God's silence is actually a very good thing. But Jesus doesn't always stay silent. Jesus doesn't always stay silent. In his perfect timing, he shows up and he speaks. And when he speaks, he communicates peace. Verse 39. And when he awoke, the wind and the sea, or I'm sorry, when he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea, he said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
Notice what's happening here. In a very similar way that God responds to Job's accusations, Jesus is responding to his disciples' accusation with a demonstration that he is Lord over all things, that he is Lord over all creation. And like with Job, the disciples are given a revelation that changes their perspective. You see, they had been with Jesus and they had seen him heal and they had seen him uh, cast out demons. And to a Jewish mindset, those are very extraordinary things. They're very rare things, but they're not unique. The prophets have done some of those throughout the Old Testament. However, in Jewish thinking, only God himself has power over creation. Power over creation is reserved for God alone. And Jesus calming the storm is very unique because it is something that is reserved for God alone. And the disciples, I don't believe, miss that. And it caused them great fear because all of a sudden their categories have been exploded. Right? And they begin to see a little bit more clearly of Jesus' identity. Now remember our opening question, do we have faith to follow Jesus without fear? Maybe I should clarify this a little bit. You see, because the disciples still follow Jesus, but they had fear. And so the question really should be, who do we fear and what kind of fear? Right? Sometimes the English translations can obscure the nuance a little bit because when Jesus says, why are you so afraid? He says, he really is saying, why are you so cowardly? But then in verse 41, when it says that there was a great fear, it's a different word. It's the word that's normally used for reverential awe, if you will. Now, there's still a sense of being afraid. There really is. But it's a fear that leads to awe and even to worship. Remember, over and over in scriptures, we are called to the fear of the Lord. All right? We're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and even trust, and it's the environment in which faith is formed in us. And that fear is birthed from out of us, from a revelation of who Jesus is as the Son of God. So friends, today, what I want to encourage us is that we can follow Jesus, but we don't have to fear the things of the world or even death itself because Jesus is the Lord over all things and he has power over all things. Now, that doesn't mean that following Jesus that we won't encounter scary things. When Jesus says, let us go across, that doesn't mean that he won't lead us into some scary places or encounter or be confronted by scary things. Remember, it was Jesus that led them out onto the sea and into the storm. But if you read on in chapter five, the moment that they get to the other side of the lake, after they've dealt with the storm all night, the very first thing they encounter is a demon-possessed man in a graveyard. And then they leave from there and they go back into a village and they encounter disease and death and all of these things. And friends, you know what? Jesus overcame every single one of them. Jesus overcame every single one of those things. They followed Jesus into all of those things. They were still scary. But friends, we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter scary things in life when we're following Jesus because we need to remember that we follow the king whose kingdom of peace is invading a broken and sinful kingdoms of the world, and there's going to be resistance to him. But as Jesus himself said, 
in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. In closing, let me say this. Ultimately, Jesus has overcome all things. On his cross and in his resurrection, when the powers of sin and evil and all the things in the world that cause disorder and chaos are put in subjection to his kingship, and it's on the cross and in his, in his resurrection that the coming new creation is made a reality. And that's a promise that we can hold on to when we follow Jesus. And so when Jesus says, let us go, we can follow Jesus without fear because he is the creator of all things. And it's the creator of all things that leads us through the creation and through the world. It's the creator of all life that leads us through life. And friends, let me encourage you that may this revelation Always give us this kind of faith to follow Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.